Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. On the show this week, the Bank of England has warned inflation will be higher and for longer, with the likelihood being a recession until the end of 2023. Though given the bank's track record on predictions, that almost certainly means inflation at 20% and recession until the end of 2026. <laughs> are schemes prepared to weather the economic storm? And if they are, what about their members? We will explore this cheerful topic and ask whether we should start planning which of our close relatives to eat first when the winter comes. Next up, consumers haven't been protected from soaring prices, but BNCE's head of policy, Tim Gosling, writes in Pensions Expert, they could be exposed to some additional significant risk with the launch of the pension dashboards unless there is a proper consumer protection regime put in place. We'll ask if he's right and if so, what we should do about that. And then finally, it will be noted that very few people have any money left, but that hasn't stopped the Financial Conduct Authority exploring the possibility of opening up long-term asset funds to certain retail investors. A class of people otherwise engaged in spending loose change on board eight NFTs are obviously best placed to make sound investments in infrastructure boondoggles, so we'll ask whether the FCA's proposals will be sufficient to drive up interest in illiquids. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter of Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Steve Hitchener, President of the Society of Pensions Professionals, and by Henry Tapper, Executive Chair at AgeWage and Spokesperson for the Pension Playplan. And thank you both very much for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Bye. If we kick off um, with recession, then we'll try and speed through it, because I think the longer we're on air, the less our wages will be worth by the time we get off. Uh, schemes can, of course, mitigate some of the damage they might otherwise have faced by hedging inflation and interest rate risk, but members are not so lucky, and they may, in fact, turn to their schemes uh, for relief. Henry, do you want to kick us off with recession fears? I suppose the place to start is how well prepared are schemes to deal with this prolonged high inflation and fears of recession? My worry is not so much the schemes who are um, well protected through uh, strategies which they've adopted in the past, uh, particularly LDI and DB schemes will be able to weather the storm relatively well. In fact, funding rates at the moment are looking really good. My worry is for members of uh, occupational pension schemes, personal pensions and for pensioners in the state pension who will, who will suffer and those who will suffer most are going to be the poor ones because they always do. Uh, and I am doubtful whether sufficient attention is being paid to the needs of members as they confront the cost of living crisis that ensues from this high inflation. Steve, do you want to come in here? I think so. If I think, yeah, it sounds like from what Henry says, the most focus should be placed on on members and their interactions with schemes. Just to round off on the the schemes preparation point, I mean, from where you're sitting, are schemes adequately prepared to deal with this? And then we'll come back to to members themselves. Yeah. So I think the main point to note on this is that schemes have pretty diverse strategies these days. I mean, I think gone are the days when you could look at changes in economic conditions and assess fairly easily how they would accept, you know, affect most schemes. Schemes are in very different places. But having said that, most schemes do now hedge most of their inflation and interest rate risk. So should, in theory, be you know, relatively immune um, to, to what goes on out, out there in the economy in that sense. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is that schemes will tend to hedge their funding liabilities, not the buyout cost, which is traditionally quite a lot larger. So if interest rates do continue to rise, then we will continue to see more and more schemes be in a position to buy out their liabilities much, much earlier than we expected. So I think that's probably the main impact on schemes. You know, I think you know, it's broadly speaking either neutral, but you could say you know, there's, quite a, you know, there's, there's quite a positive impact from the schemes perspective. 
But I think the other thing, looking at it from both the scheme and the members' perspective, these conditions that we're experiencing, very volatile conditions, they do create some challenges around member options and factors. You know, most schemes have options for members to do things other than the norm, retiring early or exchanging pension for cash. And the, the fluctuations we're seeing in inflation expectations, actual inflation and interest rates are making it really, really challenging to set those factors appropriately. Um, there's always a balance there between administrative simplicity and and being fair and, and right to the member. Um, but when conditions move as they have done, yeah, that makes it very, very challenging and, and quite difficult to deal with. Yeah, I'd agree with what Steve said, and it goes further than that. I mean, one of the issues that the steelworkers are having in Port Talbot about their compensation is that the factors which are being used to calculate their compensation, which are basically discount rates, have changed radically over the course of the year. And they are perplexed to discover that the compensation they were offered, say, in February, is now perhaps half uh, of what they're offered today. And they can't understand those kind of things. There's a big job uh, to explain to people how inflation has this strange counterintuitive impact on people's pension rights. This goes for CETVs as well, of course. It even goes for the calculation of things like pension credit, which are based on GAD rates. Uh, it's, it's implicit in the whole uh, pension system, um, and the public really just don't get it. So we have to get out and explain these things better to people. In terms of getting out and explaining it then, Steve, I mean, what work should pension schemes be doing now to prepare their members or to, to educate their members in light of the times we're currently living through about what their options are? Um, can schemes be doing more? And if so, what should they be doing? I think um, educating members is always a difficult one for schemes because you know, schemes and trustees of pension schemes in particular typically want to avoid you know, straying into anything that might be deemed to be giving their members advice. So you know, I have heard suggestions that members might be advised that they might be better off delaying retirement so as to benefit from the inflation that they would get pre-retirement, that they, that they may that not get post-retirement because that inflation becomes capped post-retirement. I mean, it does differ by scheme, but you know, broadly speaking, that's, that's it in summary. But I think most trustees that I speak to are very nervous about doing that you know, because that does then slip into constitute you know, advice to members, which is something that I think most trustees would want to steer well clear of. Speaking to Emma Douglas at, uh, at Aviva, who's obviously in charge of the PLSA at the moment as well, uh, she mentioned that Aviva have seen 32% increase in the number of requests to cash small DC pots over the last three months and a 38% increase in the number of partial encashments. This would suggest that people are looking to actually take their pensions earlier to meet the cost of living crisis that they are feeling on an individual basis and there's a big issue and concern which was expressed by the pension regulator in its recent anti-scams paper that people may find themselves scammed out of their pensions because they go for their money early um, i think there's an enormous issue here for uh, dc schemes uh, because their primary responsibility is to ensure that people actually get their money back uh, their responsibility is not as to how this money is spent. Um, there seems to be an implication that perhaps people shouldn't be spending their money on the cost of living crisis. But um, there's a contrary point of view, which is one which I subscribe to, which is that pension pots are there 
for people when they need them most. And nobody is going to need their pension pot more than those people who are finding themselves on the brink of being cut off for their electricity supply or unable to meet their food bills. Steve, any any final uh, thoughts on this? Obviously, as Henry mentioned, you know, pension is, is this a case for an argument? Sorry, for um, for expanding access to pensions early, um, and we can make up perhaps some of the shortfall later on in other ways. Yeah, I'm always slightly hesitant when it comes to accessing pensions early. Um, yeah, I I think that um, obviously pensions are, are there to provide a lifetime income in, in in retirement. That said, people do have freedom and choice with regards to how they access those pensions once they do reach a suitable retirement age. Um, and as Henry says, yeah, if 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 they need to you know, use that money, you know, to fund certain things in in the current crisis, yeah, then I, I don't think that's necessarily inappropriate. I mean, obviously, there's a big problem with adequacy of DC pots in general, you know, and I think, you know, most people don't have DC pots that are adequate, you know, to provide a, you know, a good retirement living, um, which I think is probably a bigger subject. I mean, the only other point I've mentioned from the member's perspective, and I think this is coming back more to define benefit schemes, um, I have heard quite a lot of suggestions that trustees should be considering discretionary benefits at the current time. I mean, I can understand why there is that question and why there is that call, but I, I still think from a trustee's perspective, you know, they should be focused on providing the guarantee benefits um, yeah, it's easy to sort of to call out the fact that members of DB schemes are having their increases capped at five percent when inflation is running at thirteen percent. Say, and, and that is a valid concern. However, we should also remember that we're talking about DB schemes. Yeah, that is a generation that has got you know pensions that are guaranteed for life. You know, payable at quite high levels. And when you compare them to the DC generation, you know the, the, that kind of that point about inflation. Yeah, I think is a minor point in comparison to the real issue of adequacy for you know for members of DC. Yeah, no, just on, on that, that closing at that, that point, I, I was I spoken to, uh, I think it was someone at Hyman's Robertson, I spoke to him a few months ago about discretionary increases when it was estimated they would cost about 8 billion in terms of liabilities. And I think I spoke to them about two weeks later and it had gone up to 18 billion. So uh, inflation is um, is fun. Um, I think we'll move on from that topic in that case. Um, we'll move on to dashboards. Uh, as mentioned, Tim Gosling writes in Pensions Expert that the uh, imminent launch of the pensions dashboards uh, could present significant consumer benefits, but also significant consumer risk. He cites an absence of regulations uh, governing data exports. He says that dashboards could be used as data aggregators for the purposes of product sales and financial planning tools. But whether this is to the benefit or the harm of customers uh, rests on whether those customers make good or bad decisions, uh, meaning we should probably not let members of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee use the dashboards at all. In short, he calls for regulators to develop a consumer protection regime that retains the benefits of competition while sparing members from the attendant um, risks. Now, that, that obviously sounds quite straightforward and commonsensical. Benefits, yes. Risks, no. How exactly do we go about doing this, though? Um, Steve, do you want to kick us off with this one? Yeah, so I mean, I think you've summarised the position quite nicely i mean i think that the big question here is you know who are going to be the providers of dashboards and what is their rationale for doing so and i think that is a little unclear at this point and obviously we have the default solution from you know the money and pension service but at this point yeah it's not clear what else there there will be i think there is scope for others to provide extra benefits yeah and, and systems with more flexibility and, and, and more options than the default but if they do so, I think the question is, you know, what's their rationale? You know, what's what's in it for them? Um, yeah, for example, you could see IFAs providing um, dashboards and, and for them, that's going to be a link to them getting some advice and some fees for some advice. And you can see providers 
um, you know, p- providing dashboards. And for them, it's going to be about product and product placement. I mean, I think the key with all of this is clarity. Yeah, I think if we have dashboard providers that, for example, can only offer certain products and are only linked to certain things, then I think it's quite important for that to be made clear. And I think there are parallels yeah, to the annuity market, really, in terms of tied providers you know, and, and, and the concept of being clear about that. Um, but, but I think it is an interesting area, and I, I can definitely see that it is yeah, a, a potential issue. Um, I'd add to that, but what is the counterfactual? If the counterfactual is the best things that people can do is not take decisions, uh, then what we're going to end up with is people with splintered pots, uh, maybe 10 or 13 pots, none of which are um, brought together or combined in any way because everyone's so nervous about pension transfers. And we, we could find ourselves getting to that position if we continue to worry about red flagging just about every eventuality. Um, there's a big debate going on at the moment about whitelists and who should be on them and who shouldn't. But right now, uh, it would appear that the consolidation of pots via the dashboards is not something that's going to happen in stage one, um, and we're going to have to wait. Now, to Steve's point about who makes money out of dashboards, well, I, I guess at the end of the day, the fintech answer to that is if you own the data or if you are in charge of the data, you're in a strong position, effectively. You are uh, controlling a platform which can be used for all kinds of purposes. And that's what a lot of people worry about, is that the platform is a kind of uh, potential source for all kinds of skullduggery. Um, I think it's very unlikely. The FCA have made it clear that they intend for dashboard providers to be properly regulated, and they know what they're doing when it comes to data. Uh, They've been running the innovation sandbox for long enough now to know what's good and what isn't. Um, And I think what we should be sanguine about the use of dashboards as a means of helping people a to see all their pensions in one place finding those which have been lost and b as a means of organizing their financial affairs in later life so that they are engaged with their retirement income in a much more holistic way in other words they look at not just the state pension but the state pension in the light of the private pensions they've got or vice versa so that people can start making real cash flow plans for the future based on their holistic financial situation. So I'm, I'm much more comfortable about the pension dashboard than, uh, than people like Tim Gosling. Um, and I do believe that we will find a way through this. What's most important is that we get on with it because the public are sick and tired of prevarication on the dashboard. We should have had one by 2019. It's 2022 now. We're unlikely to see anything reasonable before 2024. For heaven's sake, let's stop arguing and let's get on and do it. I guess just um, finally on the, the FCA point, um, obviously Mr. Gosling suggests that, that they should be taking the lead on developing this uh, consumer protection regulatory framework. He does point out, though, that they do have quite a lot on already coming up this autumn. Um, I think one of their he quotes their former chair Charles Randall in saying that more could have been done to protect savers from the downside risks of of pension freedoms. Are they sufficiently seized of the need in this particular aspect to protect members from potential risks, um, Steve? Or is is Henry right that actually we don't need to be worrying over much about this because you know, these things will sort themselves out? I mean, I I do think we need to worry about it. I think that, however, we will learn 
we will learn a lot more about dashboards in the first year of their operation than we can ever hope to learn in the year prior to their operation. So, I mean, I do agree with Henry in one sense that, you know, we probably need to get on with it and then learn what we can once we're up and running and, and we've got the experience in, in, in practice. I mean, that said, I don't want to dismiss the technical and practical challenges that there are involved with getting on with it. And I think, you know, we believe that there's still an awful lot of work to do, you know, ahead of launching dashboards. Yeah. But that said, you know, we, we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. We do need to get started and then we then will learn more. And then the FCA can think about, you know, the potential risks and regulation that, that, that might be required. I mean, clearly there are big benefits here. I mean, at the moment, yeah, the transfer of, of small DC pots, particularly from the occupational regime, is very cumbersome. Yeah, it is quite time consuming, possibly for good reasons in some cases. But it would be great if we could have a system, you know, which I think most people are used to in other walks of life, yeah, where these things are a bit more straightforward. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I think there are clearly lots and lots of benefits. And I, and I do think yeah, we'll learn a lot yeah, once we're up and running. Shout out for Andy Hubbard and Via Nova, by the way who have launched uh, recently a new and rival system to the Origo one, which is going to enable open uh, standards to be implemented in uh, DC to DC transfers, especially uh, from occupational to contract-based schemes. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing that. I think I've been writing about dashboards being imminent since I started in this job. So I don't really know what I'll do with myself once they'll actually launch. I'll have to find something else to do with my job. Yeah, you can go and talk about CDC or something like that, Ben. This is true. There is always some new massive long running thing to cover. Um, so, yeah, CDC can fill the gap, I hope. Um, we'll move on then finally to the, the subject of liquids. The government is still for the moment committed to a number of massive green infrastructure projects, and it does still need to find the money to build them. Although I think Liz Truss actually said this week she would rather we plant crops than build solar panels. So who the hell knows at this point? Um, assuming they do still want to fund their big green infrastructure projects, we continue in our search for creative means by which to funnel pension investments into them. And this has led the FCA to plot uh, an expansion of long-term asset funds to retail as well as institutional investors, as well as lifting the 35% liquids cap. Henry, do you want to kick us off on this? Uh, retail investors, I, I wasn't aware that we'd had massive take up amongst institutional investors yet. I mean, is the expansion to retail premature? Well, if there has been uh, an explosion in the institutional side, it hasn't been into DC. Um, Emma Douglas made a point at the PLSA conference that there was no incentive on uh, commercial DC funds such as Master Trust to invest defaults into expensive illiquid assets as they would have to bear the extra cost because they couldn't pass it on in extra AMCs to members. So why would you want to do that, she said. Where there has been an ability to actually pick up those costs and uh, and and promote them as providing extra value has been in uh, the DB area, and in particular with regard to LGPS, who aren't constrained in the same way as much of the private sector is uh, or private sector DB schemes are um, by um, the prescriptions of the pension regulator, so they can remain um, open invest for growth, whereas private schemes are typically not open and not investing for growth. So there has been some limited take-up um, in, in LGPS. Not a lot in the private sector DB space, but some, virtually none in uh, DC, although Nest has made a few attempts. And uh, there has been some noble work done by the likes of Kushan, and to a degree smart, one or two others. But you've seen 
by and large, a pretty little uh, movement in the DC space so far. As far as the retail space is concerned, they're still in shock from Woodford. They're, they're looking at, at, at the LTAS and say, would we really want to go there again? There have been so many scandals on these investment platforms. You think of Harlequin, you think of London and Capital, you think of Storefirst, you think of all the illiquids which have failed over the last 10 or 15 years. And then you think of Woodford and you ask yourself, if you were a SIPs manager, are you really going to want to get stuck into illiquids again? And the answer is almost certainly no, right now. So um, in practical terms, something big has got to change in order for illiquids to become flavour of the month. And that's more than just the marketing of illiquids by people like the Investment Association, who clearly would love to see them very much more prominent in our pension schemes. And of course, uh, the marketing of them by Boris and Rishi, which happened this time last year, where they felt that they could somehow get round the government's funding problems by getting the pension schemes to fund them if such a fault. Um, Steve, if I, if I can bring you in here, uh, as Henry says, you know there is this this disparate approach or disparate fondness for, for liquids between DB and DC, and I know some changes were made or have been talked about in DC, which is I think the charge cap being one of them. But it was always interesting to know that those issues never affected DB anyway. So attempting to remove them for DC to boost liquids uptake didn't seem to make a huge amount of sense, given that they didn't exist in in DB. You didn't need to make those changes for DB to push up DB investment. Um, is the say the thirty five percent liquids cap? Is that another things one of these barriers, or do we have to go back to things like daily dealing to look at the reason for for lack of uptake in DC? Yeah, so I mean, I think there is up there, there is uptake within DB. I mean, I think a lot of DB funds now do have um, allocations to illiquid investments, although typically not direct, you know, but 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 through a manager and, and through a fund. Um, the challenge, as you say, with the liquids is the fact you don't have daily valuations and daily liquidity, and that's something that DB schemes can cope with. It's something with DC schemes typically can't. So yeah, that's yeah. I think that's the reason why yeah that you don't see that uptake for DC schemes because it is very difficult from a practical perspective to offer funds within DC that don't have daily liquidity and and, and daily pricing for a number of reasons. And as yeah, the other pro- problem is that typically you have performance related fees and and that doesn't sit particularly well with charge caps. So I think yeah, whilst we still have those practical problems, yeah, I, I still think yeah, there is going to be that issue with DC. Yeah, retail isn't really my my area, but but I would assume that you're going to have the same problems as soon as someone's investing on an individual basis, you know, through whatever platform or through whatever means, yeah, they are going to need a greater level of daily valuation and 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 daily liquidity, yeah, that that, that you can't generally offer. Yeah, I mean, gating is a big problem in retail. It's also a big problem for some DC schemes who found they've got members in property funds who can't get out of those property funds. And members actually saying to the trustees, let us out, or if not, you know, pay our benefits and then you know, cash the units later, all those kind of issues. And who would want, to, as a trustee, to be, to be having to face in those kind of problems? Of course, if you put your liquids illiquids in a, in a default fund you dilute the problem and uh, moving on to the second part of the question you know, do we need LTFs to sort this problem um, the word I get on the street is that LTFs are um, uh, a solution waiting to find a problem the permitted links rules have been relaxed and a lot of insurance companies now think that they can get illiquids into pooled funds on a, a mingled commingled basis without um, creating a problems with li- liquidity so my my guess is that LTAFs are going to be a very um, 
high high-end institutional solution uh, and that it's the permitted links and the uh, for, for pooled funds which uh, and the relaxations on those which will will sort a lot of these problems out but i do agree um with with these issues to do with the charge cap and so on i think they're important but i think the most important one of all is uh, the commercial consideration. Why would you want to pay more for your asset managing management if you can't pass those asset management costs on to your clients? Fair enough. Um, Steve, any closing thoughts before we round off the principal part of the program? No, no, I mean, I'd support that. I mean, I think I'd just add that obviously Master Trust and GPPs very much compete on price as well at the moment. So, yeah, that's another point. Yeah, these, these things tend to have higher costs. So, again, yeah, it, it weakens the argument for, for including them. And it improves the argument for a value for money assessment rather than a price comparison site assessment, which is effectively what we've got at the moment in a lot of beauty breaks. So I hope, Steve, that in your reign as the head of the SPP, you will encourage people to start valuing their pension schemes more on the basis of outcomes than on price. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, that's a concept I think most of us could support. Excellent. Always nice to close in the measure of agreement. Um, that does round off the, the principal part of the programme. We do, I think, have time for our always a pensions angle. I believe, Henry, you had a, a couple of options for us today. So yeah. which, which are we going for? Well, I'm very struck by Mr. 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 L. Uh, Mr. L was a, uh, a, a claimant against the, the ombudsman. And his claim was that he wanted to be compensated because his SIP provider had let him invest in two totally dodgy investments, both of which had gone bust. And as a result of that, he didn't have a pension left, which the ombudsman originally looked at and thought, well, that's a reasonable claim. However, it turned out that Mr. L's principal activity was selling exactly these investments to other people. At which point the ombudsman quite rightly turned around to the fellow and said, Mr. L, what are you doing trying to convince me you didn't know what these investments were when you've been selling them yourself? And Mr. L um, has a slumped back into his corner, having lost the case. So uh, 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 in a way, a good news story. Sounds it indeed. I'm going to have to go and look that up. That sounds like a... a fascinating and entertaining one i completely missed that um good or bad on mr Allen, I think. um but was there was there a tennis one that you wanted to quickly round oh, off with yeah i mean only only serena i mean S- serena is retiring uh, but she is evolving into retirement a phrase which i think is beautiful yeah how how much most of us would like to find a way to evolve into retirement there's a pension angle to everything but Serena seems to have found a particularly delicious one. Evolving into time is a delicious phrase. Being able to do it at 40 is, is even more delicious, I think. Um, that's fantastic. I think that does bring us to the close of the programme. So uh, thank you both to Henry and to Steve very much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We will, as ever, be back in two weeks' time, and we hope we will see you then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.